Welcome to Moments in Leadership, a podcast where you will hear firsthand about the careers of senior military leaders as they share their own unique and individual experiences. Moments in Leadership will immerse you in real-life stories where you will learn about the challenging situations these accomplished leaders faced and discover the lessons they learned early in their careers that were the most influential to developing their overall leadership style. And now, here's your host, retired Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel David B. Armstrong. Welcome to Moments in Leadership. This is part two of an interview with retired Major General Mel Spies, who is a career infantry officer in the Marine Corps. We pick up our conversation with a story about the time he was a platoon commander at Officer Candidate School and how he learned a serious lesson in humility and how it took his trusted gunnery sergeant to set him straight. We then transition into some stories about the time when he was at Force Reconnaissance and the unusual experience he had as the commanding officer when he was trying to create an environment of back to basics, only to discover that his philosophy of not wearing his scuba bubble and jump wings had the exact opposite effect of what he wanted. From there, we move on to a discussion about his time as Coyote 6 and 29 Palms, where we have a very frank discussion about the need for leaders to embrace risk in training and hear through his firsthand accounts how he determined the big difference between boldness and recklessness. Then stick around to the very end where he concludes with a conversation about Mavericks and how he feels that Mavericks are valuable, yet there is a defining line between productive Maverick and a Maverick that's just simply bad for business. So with no further ado, here's part two of my interview with retired Major General Mel Spies. Welcome back to Moments in Leadership. I'm here again with retired Marine Corps Major General Mel Spies. And we spent the previous hour talking about all kinds of great things about his time as a platoon commander in 3-4. And we sussed out some really interesting things about leadership where he talked about really honing in on understanding people's strengths and weaknesses and the need to take charge and have authority and take responsibility as a leader. And we talked a little bit about how important it is to get those little pieces of feedback from the people that you are leading because it's it, it's important that when you're leading that you keep in mind that it's important to have the respect of the people that you are leading back and and you have that responsibility as a leader and we've had a couple we had a couple really great conversations on that and if you missed that episode please go back and check that out but we left off talking about some components of leadership and we were getting into observations that were made about training young marines and values-based training and the introduction of that and how it really seemed to elevate the the worth of each individual person a really interesting segue sir because i'd love to now talk to you about your time as a as a marine officer instructor in moi at an rotc unit which for those listening rotc stands for for Reserve Officer Training Corps, and it's a an avenue that is available for all branches of the service to to become a commissioned officer while while you're in college, and that's the route that uh, General Spies took to get a commission. It's the route I took to get a commission, so we're both very familiar with it. But those ROTC units have active duty officers as instructors, and the interesting thing about a Navy ROTC unit is that the the Marine Corps is part of the Department of the Navy. So if you want to be a Marine officer, you have to go to a Navy ROTC unit. And so there is always a Marine officer on staff called the Marine Officer Instructor, and they are in charge of selecting and training the students in that ROTC unit who are choosing to become Marine officers. 
And I'm sure that was a, a probably a two or three year career for you, right? Or a portion of your career, right, sir? I would offer, Dave, it was six years. I spent three years at IIT on campus, and then I went to headquarters Marine Corps and ran the program. Oh, wow. You know, my my experience with my Marine officer instructor, I had I had two Marine officer instructors and two assistant Marine officers instructors, which are the enlisted Marines. And there were, I had, I had an incredible first MOI and I had a very mm-hmm. mediocre mm-hmm. second MOI. My first MOI was a, a Mustang tanker who was a enlisted infantryman in Vietnam. And I had a, um, and I had actually a force recon staff sergeant that came in and he was very quickly relieved yeah. for some inappropriate behavior. And, and then we brought in a gunnery mm-hmm. sergeant who had just come off the drill field. Uh, sorry, just come off, just come out of eighth and I, but had been on the drill field before then. That was a completely different experience. But I just look back on the way I revered those, my, that really great MOI and that really great AMOI. I don't, I don't think that I would have become a Marine officer and a, a halfway decent Marine officer if it wasn't for those two in the examples that they set. So it's really interesting. I'd love to hear your take on it because... Also, as a surprise, um, some of the people who were very instrumental in my attempts to emulate fantastic officers were some of your students. Mike Barr, Eric Crudo, yep, Eric Crudo, Joe Hanley. Those were some of my very best friends when I was a second lieutenant. I'm still in touch with them to this day. We talk through social media mostly, very often. And those were officers that I tried very hard to emulate. And it turns out that they are all products of your time as a Marine officer instructor at IIT, Illinois Institute of Technology. You know, Dave, I, I do want to respect your time. I could talk for hours on that experience. It was tremendous, and I still have a chance to talk to them from time to time, which or talk about a gift. You know, who would think that being a Marine officer instructor is an assignment that would be significant in, you know, in a career on really anybody, right? It's three years on a college campus. And these are all students and all the rest of that. Uh, Specifically, I'm curious because at this point now you're a major and you've had some of these observations from earlier in your career and now you are setting the example and honing these young men and women into becoming officers someday and you're starting out with very basic leadership. And here's all this experience that we just talked about in the previous hour. You're now putting into action every day, individually, you yourself and a probably a gunnery sergeant, and you're responsible for setting the conditions for their success. And not only the setting the conditions of, six, of the success of those Marine options, but the conditions for success of the Navy officers too. And would love to hear some of your lessons learned? What did, what did you learn? What did you experience? What were some eye-openers with that? Yeah, this is, this is an interesting one. So I was a platoon commander at OCS, and my AMOI was the platoon sergeant, and he was a great leader. We worked great together. I really admired him, and talked to Joe and Mike and Eric. They all worshipped Gunny Coke. And we had a meet-up. At the beginning of the summer, company commander, Mike Franks, from uh, the uh, Virginia Consortium, Old Dominion, was talking about not liking candidates. You know, you got to be careful. You know, you got to be objective. And I'm sitting there thinking, 
I would never dislike somebody. I'm bigger than that. I'm better than that. There was an ESAP who I didn't like, and I was setting him up for failure, putting a lot of pressure on him when he had billets and stuff like that. One evening, Gunny Coe came to talk to me. I was leaning against the door, and we were talking about him, and I didn't like him. That was it. He was pointing out to me that I was setting him up for failure and I wasn't being fair. As he, as he was describing it, I, I knew it, right? And, and of course, as he's talking to me, I'm starting to see it. And, and what, what's the biggest killer for a human being and a leader? Well, it's pride, right? And, and he was pointing out to me that I was wrong. We don't like to do that. We don't like to admit that we're all wrong or acknowledge that. And then the conversation isn't going, and then, then I just ask the question, okay, Gunny, should he be a lieutenant in the Marines? And said, yes, sir, he should be a lieutenant. I said, okay, got it. That's it. Well, here's the thing that pierced my heart. I'm at headquarters Marine Corps in the following assignment. I'm walking over to the gym one day with a guy that I would PT with all the time, Chuck Dallahy, and he talked about picking up a lieutenant on the road, walking from the basic school to Mainside, but he went out to the uniform shop. The lieutenant got in the car and just kind of talking to him. Conversation got to his experience at OCS, and he talked about the platoon commander of OCS, what a jackass he was, and how unfair he was. Chuck mentioned the lieutenant's name, and it was, it was that, that candidate. And his assessment of me was right. You know, so it wasn't just Gunny Cole helping me correct an error that really would have affected the life of another Marine. It was reinforced two years later when Chuck Dallahy and I are walking, and he described his opinion of me as a leader. And he was right. Holy cow, that's 30 years ago, Dave, and it, it just, putting a, a, a stake in my heart couldn't have hurt anymore. And, you know, to the degree that I, I could ever offer an apology, the follow-on to that would be I took a lesson from it, and it made me better, and I think I was able to, to do some things to uh, for other people along the way not to have a similar experience. That's an, an amazing display of humility. And we talk about the leadership traits and principles that we spent the last hour talking about and nowhere in uh, the, the 1411 is there the word humility, but there is, to your point, it is embedded in something. Know yourself and seek self-improvement. So, so some of these things are embedded in there and that's just an example of you exercising that. And remembering it and applying it to future leadership situations. After your time at OCS, you eventually found your way to a battalion-level command at 2nd Force Recon. That was in the early 90s. Take a few minutes and talk about what the what was happening with the Force Recon community, because a lot of listeners now know that it's not around, the recon community is totally different than it was back when you and I were both in. The Force Reconnaissance community was the tip, considered the tip of the spear, the most cutting edge thing we had going to the Marine Corps. If you were a Force Recon guy, you were walking on water. And what's it like to come in after all the experiences that you had and come in and take command of a unit that has a lot of homesteaders in it, right? If you're a Force Recon Marine, you can kind of stick around there a lot. 
You've got a lot of Marines who are very senior in rank, enlisted Marines who are senior in rank, and officers are coming in from other community, infantry communities, but not having cut their teeth in the recon community. And talk about some of the leadership challenges there as it related to setting the conditions for the officer's success while still deferring to appropriately to the duty, the subject matter experts of the enlisted Marines in a community that's just kind of revered and maybe can foster some interesting personalities. I went and saw the meth command. That This is a funny story in itself, but I would only tell it over here. But in the course of the conversation, General Keyes said two things. First is, I have no confidence that they could do the mission for the meth they're supposed to do. And the second was, I know we spend a lot of money on them, but they shouldn't be allowed to behave the way they Well, Dave, to me, that's pretty simple commander's intent, right? Two simple tasks. So I never had any time in the recon community. And from time to time, at least in the old days, we would send a basic infantry guy there to kind of re-green things. And it was my turn. Had I been in the recon community before, I don't know how well I would have done. Because I went as a lieutenant colonel, I was well grounded in myself. I knew who I was. I didn't need to chase any badges. Too old to get caught up in stuff. What the unit needed was to be reminded they were Marines. And, and it was interesting, of course, to get the, well, you know, they're not special, they're just Marines. And everybody's telling me that, and, you know, I always said that, and that's kind of the thing. And then we're getting ready for this big exercise, and there was a lot of concern because there had been incidents with that unit, Marines out doing things, I mean, even almost international incidents. And, and I got the message from... Lieutenant Colonel's on the meth staff. I got a call on the weekend. Hey, make sure you brief these guys. Make sure they know. And then, and then I had the general called me. I want you to talk to each of them individually to make sure. Oh, man. Okay. So I, I had this team in that was going to do this link up with an Army unit at some national park. I've been there for a while. And, you know, I'm thinking to myself, they're not special. They're not special. They're not special. So everybody comes in. And I'm looking at these four guys, and they were special. They were special, Dave. I mean, you were an Anglo cop. They, they wouldn't be there if they weren't special. They were smart. They were hard. They were good looking. I mean, they could have been movie stars. They could have been professional athletes. The whole, whole nine yards. You didn't know any of my Force Recon friends then. But, <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing. Yeah, they are special, but that doesn't matter. Just because you have taken on a task and you can do some amazing things doesn't mean you leave the basics behind. All that remains valid. When I got to the unit, we, we are going to wear uniforms. You can wear the flight suit when you're on the range shooting. You don't wear the flight suit around the barracks. You wear the uniform around the barracks. I will accept company PT gear, but you wear our company PT gear, not the company you came from or the one you want to go to. Because I didn't get the message, okay, let's, we'll start from the beginning. And it was interesting, Dave, when I went there, you know, there were some issues. And when I talked to people about, start with what you know. So I walked in there, nope, I didn't go to free fall school. I never shot an MP5. I wasn't a diver, you know, none of that stuff. What did I know? I know that you behave and you look like a Marine. And that's where we started. I knew I couldn't go wrong with that. And then at the same time, I'm learning about the business because, in fact, we had a mission. 
And it was a unique mission. It was a mission that nobody else in the MEF could do. And that mission had to be met. And, and what I did have was an XO and a first sergeant who wanted help. They wanted the right thing to be done. So I wasn't alone. It's key. You have the team. So here's another, another event. And this was a profound one for me as well. I had been to jump school as a midshipman, so I had my lead sled, you know, the silver jump wings. And then I did go to dive school. I went to the pool. We were doing some pre-scuba stuff, and I was just down there watching how it was going. And it was Camp Lejeune, so it was a summer. It was hot, humid, you know, and the pool was hot and humid. So I took my you know, utility shirt off, my utility blouse off, and I just laid it across a chair. When I came back, somebody had pinned the silver dive bubble on it. So I, I, I went back to the company, and I sat down with the first sergeant, and I said, okay, I, you know, I took my shirt off, I left it on, probably Staff Sergeant Grenier, you know, pinned the dive bubble on it. I said, you know, what's this? You know, okay, think about this, Dave. I'm commanding Second Force Reconnaissance. First Sergeant Eni says, they don't think you're proud of them, and they don't think you're proud of being associated with them because you don't wear your badges. I thought, holy cow. I was not wearing my badges to convey this for basic Marines. Oh, I get it. You had already gone through dive school. You had already rated the badge. Yes. I wasn't, wasn't wearing it because... Hey, we're not special. We're just basic Marines. And, and First Sergeant Eni and I said, that, you know, they think you're ashamed of it. I wore my badges after that. That was profound. You know, here I was trying to set this example of being the basic Marine, and I lost sight of who they were. They weren't special. I wasn't special. But in fact, that's who we were, and I wasn't representing their identity. It's a little bit like the candies on the pack, right? The subtle reminders of, hey, you're doing well or you're not doing well. It's it's like you were talking about with your daughter, right? Oh, the, 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 the man went Hulk on us. And, and here's the interesting thing. One was as a second lieutenant, and here I am a lieutenant colonel. And, yeah, I'm still learning and still, you know, the same things, if you will, at, at a different level, at a different scale. and. So that was a really interesting story about Second Force, but of course, of course, you went on to do a great deal of other things in the Marine Corps as well. I know you went to Special Operations Command and then, of course, the schooling. But from there, you ended up in the late 90s out at TTECG, correct? Yes. And, and it's kind of interesting. I spent two years at Leavenworth, one year in fellowship at the School of Advanced Military Studies, and in the second year as a faculty member, a seminar leader for the majors going through the, the second year major, selected second year major course, Advanced Military Studies program at MSQ. Ended up at 29 Palms after that, and it, that in itself is kind of interesting. The monitor called me. I'd just been selected for colonel. And, you know, I called the introduction and, you know, what are you doing next? And I'm at I'm at SAMS, I'm a strategic thinker, and I'm thinking, I need to go to Germany and, you know, paint the big blue arrows into the heart of the Soviet Union. The monitor came back and uh, said, now, the whole world is open to you as long as it's back in the Marine Corps and bounded by 495. 
Of course, that started giving me the heebie-jeebies going back to Washington. I was doing a paper, research paper. I was on the road a bit, and I came back, and there was a message waiting for me. And I, I picked it up, and it was the monitor, and it said, give me a call. Now, that's never a good sign. I was far too junior to have a message waiting for me from the monitor to call him for a good deal. And when we talked, he said, do you remember I brought up 29 pounds? I said, yes. And what was your answer? I said, I didn't give you one. And he said, well, this is a great opportunity. Everybody speaks very highly of you. And he was giving me the used car salesmanship. And, you know, I'd been to 29 Palms. I'd been to a couple of Caxes. And all I knew, Dave, was that there were tents and A-frames and a lot of time in the desert. And, you know, I knew my family wouldn't live in a tent or an A-frame, but I had no real evidence of it. You know, so I'm thinking, oh, man. I said, okay, I need some time to think about it. And I called a friend of mine. At that point, Lieutenant Colonel Bob Neller called him up and I said, hey, Coyote 6 is open. And he was crestfallen. I said, well, Bob, what's up? He goes, I wanted that billet. It was supposed to be open next year for a number of reasons. It's going to become open early. And I said, well, if he wants it, then I have to want it. And got back to the monitor. And it ended up uh, a couple things on this day. I spent two years at Sam's. That was a pivot point in my career. And I really went from being an operational guy, if you will, to being a training and education guy. Right. And so for, for people who aren't Marines or, or even in the military, you've mentioned SAMS. Can you just explain what that is? School of Advanced Military Studies. It's a very select school for the Army, built a long time ago on the model of, and theoretically, Dwight Eisenhower sitting on the porch with George Marshall at Fort Benning, kind of learning at his feet, if you will. There was a small fellowship for top-level school. In, in fact, it was interesting. The only, I was at Special Operations Command, and the only school in the entire list of dozens of schools, the Naval War College, the Army War College, the Air War College, the Marine Corps War College, schools overseas, fellowships, the only one that would get me out of twenty or out of U.S. Special Operations Command at 22 months was that assignment because it only opens up once every two years. And is it similar to uh, the Marine Corps SAW? Is it? Well, it's it's a top level school equivalent of that, and arguably even a level above that. Okay. I mean, every day on average, two PhD faculty and eight students. Oh wow. Okay. It was the Book a Day Club. Uh, very. Good. It was exceptional. It, it was amazing. So that pathway, I would spend the next nine years in training or education billets. It, you know, my career just took a pivot, and that's how things worked out. So the first of those assignments was TTCG, Tactical Training Exercise Control Group, ran the Combined Arms Training Program. It was a high-end unit training, collective training, the highest end in, in the Marine Corps. Every service has an equivalent of that. The difference between the Marine Corps and the other services is it was almost exclusively live fire. And we did that because there was no way you can simulate the actual integration of effects of maneuvering ground forces under the effects of bombs coming off of airplanes 
and artillery rounds coming out of the tubes. You just can't do that in, you know, laser tag, the miles system or things like that. So in order to get the discrete mechanics of the timing down, you had to do it live fire. And the power of that, of course, where the Marines were able to see the effects and then, you know, working from air delivered ordnance down to the fire team maneuvering machine guns and rifles as the Marines got out of the back of the amphibian tractors, they were moving over the objectives that was still warm and smoldering from the effects of air-delivered ordnance and artillery. And it was very high risk. Periodically, Marines get killed there because it's high-end training and human nature and, and human failings occur. It was the highest-end training that the Marine Corps did. And, you know, there are some challenges to it. There was a lot of criticism about it for, for all kinds of different things, right? In live fire, you didn't have an actual enemy playing against you. It's tough to get volunteers to be on the opposing force, unlike Miles and Laser Tag. So the enemy, in fact, was constructed in the imagination, trying to paint a picture around really static targets in the desert. So it was a challenge conveying. But what we were working on were the basics, the blocking and tackling of the hardest thing you can do, and that is the precision integration of air-delivered ordnance, surface fires, direct fire, and maneuver on common targets in order to destroy and suppress so that when the maneuvering force got there, the enemy was sufficiently beaten that the maneuver would go smooth and effective. So there was a lot of pressure. My first time on my own, we were doing a live fire defense of a rifle company uh, that had done the helicopter assault course. So this was one company that planned for several days and did this very elaborate live fire assault from helicopters up into this up into this valley uh, in the northern part of the base. And they were there for 24 hours. And now we were going to do a live fire extraction a, a, a under under pressure. You know, the imaginary bad guys are coming. We're painting the picture to the Marines and they're putting in fires as helicopters are coming in and extracting the Marines as they're being pulled out. This is all new to me. Um, in the course of one of the, the tactical actions, we had F-18s come in and they hit a target that was being suppressed by artillery and marked. Artillery is firing on this mouth of a draw where the bad guys were streaming in as we were painting the picture, talking to, to the exercise force. And by marking the target, there would be a white phosphorus round so that the pilots at 15,000 feet, at 12,000 feet, would be able to see exactly where they needed to drop the bombs. So F-18s came in, they hit the target well, and the series that we had planned and we were executing had them striking the target twice. So there were, at a period of several minutes, a second white phosphorus round that came out and marked the target, and the planes hit it and nailed it perfectly. And then they asked permission to come around a third time because they had guns, ammunition for their cannons, and they wanted to unload it. Now, since they had already visited the target twice with bombs, you would think pretty simple to have them come around a third time. So we, we continued the artillery suppression 
but we didn't put in another mark. That would have complicated things. So they were just coming back and they were orienting on the artillery smoke and the dust coming up from, from the explosions. And it seemed pretty simple. I was sort of back in my vehicle. And then all of a sudden across the air net, our coyote, our air coyote, our instructor cut controller cut in and he aborted the attack. You know, just right over the tactical net, he cut in on the forward air controller talking to the pilot and it was abort, abort, abort. So we broke it off. So I'm sitting there thinking, hmm, okay, that was something and, and I probably ought to know about it. So I walked on over to the vehicle where... Uh, Tommy Euler, Crash Euler, Coyote 14S, Sierra, was operating. And I, I walked over and I said, okay, you know, Tom, just you know, tell me what was going on. Obviously, if you had to abort, you saw something. You, you needed to interfere with what the exercise force was doing, I assume because of safety reasons. And it would be useful for me as a new guy to know that. And he said, well, he noticed that the aircraft, the F-18s were up at 15,000 feet, you know, coming down to 12,000 feet and 10,000 feet. And he noticed that the nose of the aircraft were about five degrees too low. I couldn't even see the aircraft, let alone pick that up. And I said, okay, well, what was that about? And he said the, the forward air controller had put a couple of helicopters, a couple of Cobras, in a ground hover on the other side of the hill. So they're on this ground cover, the aircraft are kicking up dust, and what had happened is the F-18s were not oriented on the artillery, but they were oriented on the helicopters, and he cut in and aborted them right before he gave them the clear that would have had them shooting guns on live 20-millimeter cannons on top of flying AH-1 Cobras. And I thought, okay, Tom, well, that was pretty good. And I walked back to my vehicle. I can't tell you how overwhelmed I was. Had he not paid attention, had he not caught that and had the bold courage to interfere and interpose himself, we probably would have had several fatalities. And I would have been doing an investigation and explaining why two F-18s shot down two Cobras at 29 Palms and Lot Fire. Wow. And a couple of things hit me when I went back to my vehicle. The first thing was I understood why I was there. Now, I was coming out of SAMS. I was this great strategic thinker. And here I am uh, watching this training where we're sequencing fires by seconds, where we're determining aircraft stay above at the high point of the artillery trajectory coming over the target. I mean, these very, very refined, small, minute tactical things. And I'm a big blue arrow gun. I'm thinking, okay, you know, what is my role here? Well, the worst thing that would happen, other than losing the life of the Marines, is we would have shut that program down, probably for six months or a year. And then when it came back, we would have put such safety restrictions in that we would have been training to poor standards. I mean, I'm sitting thinking all this, and I realized the single number one priority for me, the director of the Tactical Training Exercise Control Group running the Combined Arms Training Program was, I was the steward of the Marine Corps' most complex and most important training. And it hit me that that's what I was doing. I was a steward. And my responsibility was the sound execution of the training and the safe execution of the training 
for the sake of the Marines undergoing training. Now, I will offer to you and, and uh, retired Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Joe Dunford, when he commanded the 5th Marines, uh, go marching on the, you know, the march to Baghdad, went to the CACs before they went to the war. And he speaks of the profound impact that CACs had on the readiness of his regiment. And he attributes much of their readiness for war was that training that took place at 29 pounds. That's how impactful and important the training was. I came to understand my responsibility was the stewardship of this irreplaceable training program for the Marine Corps. And it was, for me, a profound revelation. And what I started to understand in that, Dave, was how we did business. As a steward, I was not the instructor. I did very little talking to the exercise force. When I talked to them, I talked to them about things that a colonel would talk about. It wasn't my job to offer my criticism to a captain or a major or lieutenant colonel. That's why we had our instructors, our controllers, our coyotes. It was their responsibility. My job was to watch them and how they were doing their job mm -hmm. because they were the program. It wasn't me. And it was interesting when we would do our big debriefs, and it would include hundreds of Marines sitting in the desert in the middle of nowhere. I would sit with the exercise force. I would sit next to the colonel who was the exercise force commander because I wanted to see and feel how the critique and the feedback and the instruction was going to the exercise force. And you talked about this idea of presence of mind earlier, concept that as we're taught as lieutenants is about maintaining your cool under extreme pressure. Now we tend to think about that in combat. Your life is on the line, the lives of other people are on the line. These are big consequential decisions and the outcomes our success or failure, life or death, serious, serious stuff. And the idea is the ability of the leader's brain to function in that environment. And as we talk in, in the fitness report in that particular block, it even said on the fitness report, only used in combat or words to the effect. I marked that for the controllers, the coyotes at TTECG. And I did that because of examples like that. So many interesting questions I just wrote down about that. I'd, I'd like to just explore this a little bit more. I can relate very closely to what you're describing in terms of the live fire environment at 29 Palm, because as people who listened to my first episode podcast where I introduced the whole concept of this project will recall that I was there for two years as an artillery officer, and so was Matt Cooper. And the two of us talk all the time about how our experiences very early on in our career were unlike anyone else's. You don't get to shoot artillery like that in Hawaii or Okinawa or Camp Pendleton or Camp Lejeune or, or really anywhere else, even on the Army side of the house. They are static observation posts and they are static firing positions and everything is very safe and there's impact areas that are have all kinds of buffers built in to make sure nobody gets hurt. Those don't exist in 29 Palm. While there are certainly observation posts designated on the map, you don't have to use them. You can have an observation post anywhere you want to. You can have a battery position anywhere you want to. You can shoot anywhere you want to. And in fact, it's so incredible that you can actually as an artillery battery, shoot into a, a ridge and 
when you're done shooting, you can go occupy that ridge. Even even more even more than that, Dave. I mean, the idea is while that shooting is going on, Marines are maneuvering to it, and we turn the artillery off when the Marines come within 1,000 meters of where the rounds are hitting. Right. I gave that little lead in because I, I want to ask you some questions specifically about risk and the perception of risk and the assumption of risk in the context of being a leader, which I think is very important. If you are an artillery officer or, or an infantryman in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, you would never in a million years ever walk through the impact area. It would be insane to think about walking through the impact area there. Yes. But in 29 Palms, as a matter of fact, it is the impact area. And so there's just this perspective different perception of risk that is so interesting to me because your ability to really incorporate risk into an equation and the whole program that you ran and oversaw there and the reason that General Dunford found it so instrumental to his success as, a, as the CEO of 5th Marines march up was because he was able to experience that risk and have, a, have it in context in his future decision-making. And there is nowhere else in the world that I'm aware of where you can exercise that level of risk that you are given the ability to assume that sort of risk in your conduct as an artillery battery or somebody who's clearing F-18s hot onto a ridge, and then your involvement in overseeing the safety of it all. It's fascinating to me that there are not more places that you can do that sort of risk. It makes 29 Palms and what we do and the, the TTECG group, the, the value that they provide the units. I don't know if people really understand what they're experiencing there until they compare it to something else. And I know I'll, I'll hear a lot of my army friends say like, well, we've got NTC. I'm like, that is just because it's kind of next door to 29 Palms doesn't make it 29 Palms. I'm telling you right now. I'm just wondering what your perspective is and became as you became a general officer did that change your perspective of risk in training? Because one of the things that I'm really fascinated about is have we done ourselves a massive disservice by trying to mitigate risk and injury and damage to equipment down to the lowest possible number possible? Have we actually impacted our ability to realistically train and take a Joe Dunford and make him that incredible leader in the march up if if we have mitigated that risk down to zero would he have become that great of a leader things out the safety parameters that we put in at most of our bases and stations they are understandable if you will from the perspective of safety problem is of course you become conditioned and one of the big challenges at 29 palms is when those safety requirements right the safety t for artillery the offset shooting so that you can make the worst mistake in the world and nothing bad will happen, which is, in fact, similar to what I saw at the NTC National Training Center in the Army's live fire. They did not do the sort of close integration, but live fire up there was secondary to laser and miles as opposed to us where it was primary. So, so let me give a couple of things. First off, the ability to do the things that we're able to do in the combined arms exercise program were waivers to the safety regulations. The safety regulations didn't go away, but because of the presence of the TTECG controller, the Coyote, the commanding general of the base was able to grant waivers 
so that we could do things because we became the safety, not the procedure. So we could get rid of all of the artificial procedures and that responsibility then moved to the coyote, which again became incredibly powerful as it relates to the responsibilities that they have. Now, one of the things I learned in my time in aviation, I had a really good group commander. And that was back to your story where you were during Desert Storm. And he talked about safety. And we were talking about safety, and he said something that I thought was profound. You know, we were using this term safety is paramount all the time, right? We we were just beating ourselves up with it. And he said, you know, if safety was paramount, we would never fly an airplane. It can't be paramount because every time you fly an airplane, there is inherent risk. So the fact that we will fly the airplane says that safety is not paramount. Hence, safety is integral into everything we do. It was an entirely different mindset. When we would instruct at TTECG, we didn't use the term safety. We used the term risk mitigation and considerations. For example, if a Marine gets killed, you lose combat power, right? One Marine down, he can't do the job, whatever. If that person is shot by a bad guy, he's dead. If he's shot by a good guy, he's dead. So this idea of making, doing things safe and sound and procedurally is a part of military effectiveness. You can never discount it. If you are sloppy in your procedures in combat and you're shooting your own Marines, you are defeating yourself. So all the procedures that we do teach in instruction and we train to are designed to ensure the sound, proper application of the weapon systems consistent with the maneuvering presence of Marines on the battlefield, whether it's aircraft or tanks or, you know, just Marines maneuvering, so that you effectively shoot the bad guys and you don't shoot the good guys. So once you have this idea that these aren't safety parameters to make it hard, these are the sound considerations to ensure you are effective in the execution of your tasks, you look at this entirely differently. And then you can start this idea of assuming more risk because the safety parameters aren't restrictive, they're permissive. We structure this in a way so that we do it safe and sound as we would in combat. We would never drop artillery on our own Marines in combat So, of course, we would never do it in training. And the things we put in place to not do it in training, if they become artificial, then to become an impediment in combat. You have to do it in the permissive, constructive, positive sense, not the passive, restrictive sense. Right. And a great, I'm going to make up an example so everybody can follow this, but I think what you're, what you're saying, and it relates to what you, what you did out there, was during training, at, if you're any sort of unit, you go to the rifle range or you go to ranges and you shoot your weapon systems, whether they're the individual M16s or the, the crew serve weapons or whatever they are. And those ranges are run very systematically and very safely. Overly safe. You can condition bad habits 
in some of the procedures, correct? That's right. That, that's exactly where I was getting to. So I always, off, I often ask myself, as a lieutenant at TVS, if I'm an officer and I'm expected to to be safe and a thinker and be safe and everything, but I'm not allowed off the rifle range until I break my M16 down and somebody rams a cleaning rod through it just to make sure there isn't a round in there anymore. Who's going to be creating the awareness level if we go into combat and I'm a platoon commander and I have 40 or 50 guys or anything and everyone's running around with full magazines, rounds in the chamber, fingers off the trigger. How, how are we training Marines to be careful in that environment if we can't even walk off the rifle range without having a cleaning, a cleaning rod put down the barrel of your rifle? And I, I just always started to wonder, are we actually creating a more dangerous situation because of the safety constraints that we've put in to make sure nobody gets hurt? Well, let me throw a couple of thoughts out. One is the training that, that we were doing at the point we were sending our Marines off to war was so far advanced from how we did business when I came in. It's amazing. I mean, I can't give you it east to west. That's how far separated it was. That's how far it grew and improved and got better. In the perspective, the improvements are vast. Let me also throw a couple things out. Part of this, Dave, is, you know, we do have the mishaps, and that's going to be inevitable. So we have to decide where we're willing to accept the mishap. Are we willing to accept it at the rifle range when somebody is lazy, it's been a bad day shooting, a cold day, you know, raining, whatever the case may be, and run the risk of a shot going off in the bus you know, so there's, where do we want to employ the risk? Understanding that we are trying to also work with, you know, young people who are human by nature. How do we do the right supervision? Who teaches the Marine to make sure the weapon is clear? It should be the squad leader, the platoon sergeant, the platoon commander. Looking at the weapon to make sure is like them grading any other field event. I think if you condition it right, if we get to the point where we're running the cleaning rod down the barrel, then something has broken down, we've done it wrong. Let me offer to you, when we get to that point, it's either our procedures are so bad that the range people have taken over responsibility for all that, or that our leadership has broken down and we can't rely on squad leaders, platoon sergeants, platoon commanders to make sure the weapons are So yeah, it, there, there are some things to take into account. I agree with you. Yeah, I also really want to come back to that moment where you were talking about the abort on the aircraft, the F-18s coming in and potentially hitting the Cobras. And you said you went back to your vehicle and you reflected on that. I'd like to dig in a little bit more on that, that moment in your career too, because I think one of the things that's so valuable about people like you sharing stories on a medium like this is that a listener can actually learn something just by hearing a story. And I think it's important to emphasize those reflections on close calls are such formative leadership and learning experiences that they're worth other people hearing about. And the fact that you said that really highlights for me the importance of that because as I said on my first podcast, so much of what I learned were through those teeth sucking moments where you just say, oh God, that was a close call. I will never let that happen again. Let me speak more plainly. I got back to my vehicle and I said, holy shit, what have I stepped into? And I really started thinking, 
It was my first combined arms exercise as TTECG. We were within a Marine Captain CH-46 pilot's span of attention of having a horrible catastrophe that would have just shuddered through the whole Marine Corps. And I thought, holy cow. But I'm glad it happened. And I'm glad it happened on my first one because it changed everything. And we had, you know, through my time there, more than just a couple. It's just inevitable. And after each one, as a group of professionals, and it, it was, you know, Dave, if you were, were to have been a fly on the wall when we would do our internal debriefs on those, you, it would bring tears to your eyes. It would make you proud. We would wire brush ourselves. We had one one night. It was a light armored reconnaissance company in the defense up in uh, Lava Lake, if you sure. remember. It was night. You know, we're bringing aircraft in. Boy, you know, one of the lessons is listen to your instincts. So this is, you know, taking place, and I'm up there with the lead company right behind the command vehicle with the forward air controller and the fire support team leader and stuff. And, I mean, it's great, right? It's fun. We're shooting guns at night. LAVs are pounding out the 25-millimeter cannons, and stuff is happening. And we've got AV-8s. You know, coming in, dropping bombs, and we're designating the targets with laser designators. I mean, it was intense. You know, we we had several sets of aircraft that were coming in. This was early in 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 the sequencing. I think it was about the second second series we were doing. You know, you just know things. You, you develop this sixth sixth sense. You know, we try to bring the aircraft in left to right, right to left, right. So if the bomb's long, the bomb's short. It's you know, going somewhere other than the good guys, right? We do permit air coming in over the shoulder, but it's advisory and it's very restrictive. And if you're bringing the air in over the shoulder, then the forward air controller is not permitted to say cleared hot on the aircraft, allowing the pilot to release the bomb until he is at the minimum at the forward edge where the good guys are so that he can't release behind. We're doing this and we're bringing the aircraft in over the shoulder and we're running the aircraft through twice. And the first pass, you know, the forward air controller, the FAC, you know, gave the release, cleared hot. He said cleared hot and, you know, the vibration of the jet was behind me, right? So what's my brain saying? Hmm, something's not right. The vibration of the jet is supposed to be ahead of me. And then on the second one, the same thing happened, only he released it a little bit sooner. And the bomb, supposed to be a thousand meters, it landed closer than that. I won't speculate, but debris was falling on us, right? The, the, the dirt was flying back on top of us. It was falling around the vehicles. And of course, the Marines on, on the LAV are just hooping and hollering. I mean, they had just won the Super Bowl. They thought it was the greatest thing in the world. Of course, the controllers shut it off. We were done for the night. You know, we got together and our knees were wobbly. And that was one of the best debriefs we had. And, and one of the things we learned, you know, we're human beings. We wanted them to be successful and we got sucked into it. Instead of being objective and, and aborting it when he, you know, cleared him behind us, we, we allowed it to happen because we wanted them to get the bombs off and, and, and be successful in that strike. We should have aborted it 
made sure he had it right instead of the close risk we had. We actually could have been far worse than it happened. And then as a consequence, we just shut it off for the night. You know, we had lost good situational awareness and we ended up losing training in the process. So it cost us more than near missed. You know, we lost some training for that night. And we went back and squeezed Brinegar, who was Coyote 1-4, F-18 pilot, just one of the best officers I've ever served with in my entire life. We uh, wire brushed ourselves, talked through, we knew what we did wrong, and we just reset ourselves. Yeah, I just, I have found those to be the most valuable lessons that I mm -hmm. ever had. And I'm just wondering if I can buy a little bit more on this concept or, or what I'm calling a concept. It's really just a thought I have. Are we creating a problem with this challenge between realism and risk management? Or do you think the Marine Corps actually does a pretty good job of balancing those two things? One of the things, Dave, is we, we are able to take more risks there because, again, we have the, the, the trainer controller as a safety backstop. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the term. It, it's an, a formal term we use. So we assist in that and there at that time when I was there. It still do. I mean, that's what those guys do there. So we, we take some of that burden on because, you know, it's this third party standing back, looking at it objectively, who is able to then, you know, stop, prevent, you know, the catastrophe from happening that allows us to take that kind of risk. One of the things is if you don't have that we call him a range safety officer, right? Right. If you don't have that range safety officer who has real authority, we say he does, but you know, sometimes under you know peer pressure, especially if you're taking somebody from your own unit, you know, you you want to make sure the training gets done, right? You might not be able to come back tomorrow night, so you have to get it in tonight. And and you know, some things don't look right, but hey, it'll probably be okay. I remember, you know, looking at an investigation when I was the Deputy Commanding General of First Marine Expeditionary Force on a Marine who was killed at the Udari Range, I think in the UAE, United Arab Republics. And and looking at that investigation, you could see everything was going wrong. And there were several like every mishap there's several points along the way had somebody stuck his hand in the air and said, look, we're doing it wrong, it would have been prevented. Sometimes there's negligence. Sometimes it you know, tends to be always negligence. Sometimes it's omission. Sometimes it's commission. And sometimes in the omission, there's this human nature. And again, we experienced it. We wanted them to be able to get the bombs off. I know the aircraft were probably low on gas, and if they didn't get it off this pass, they weren't going to get it off. So we, we become almost a part of them. I think you have to be able to allow that to take place, and it's got to be well positioned so that the people who are executing aren't doing artificial safety oversight. That falls on somebody else who then can allow them to make the mistake or come to the point where a mistake is about to be made. And then you reach your hand and say, okay, stop, look, it's getting dangerous. Let's talk about it. Let's, you know, here's what's breaking down. And that becomes part of the tactical debrief, right? You know, what do you gain if you seize the objective and you've shot four or five of your own Marines? That's not good in combat, right? This gets back to the point of how do we see this? A wounded Marine is a wounded Marine, no matter how that occurs, if you're doing it to yourself, 
you're reducing combat power. The other thing that you're doing, of course, is you're shattering cohesion and everybody loses confidence. And that's a breakdown that that is worse than the bad guys shooting you. You have to be able to build this in and you have to train at the high end. You have to train at high risk because that's what war is. And it allows the Marines to have confidence in each other, have confidence in the leaders because the leaders do know what they're doing. Right. I, I'm going to use this as a great opportunity to tie together the concept that you were talked about a few minutes ago, which was presence of mind into yes. what you were doing as Coyote and wrap in this risk idea and lead us into that conversation about Mavericks and the military all at the same time. Your story about your subordinate who aborted the aircraft is such a fantastic example of presence of mind. And like you, I remember very distinctly being told, like, you never get a presence of mind. That is always marked not observed. And at one point, I had a fitness report written on me where my presence of mind was marked. I remember him saying, this is probably more valuable to your career than me giving you a Navy Achievement Medal. That was a statement that was made to me. Now, I'm retired and I have all of my a, a, a paltry number of personal decorations in a little box on my bookshelf. I don't have that fitness report framed. So I don't know if I believe that was really true, but it's kind of a funny story. But you're so right about that presence of mind because it's so critical in the world of risk management and safety to train and encourage people to always have a presence of mind in environments where we are doing really risky things. So now I'm going to ask a question that may be a little controversial. I'm, I'm curious, do you think that there is a connection between risk mitigation and trying to further somebody's career from the standpoint of, if I want to be a career officer, do 20 years or even become a general, don't I have an incentive to take the least amount of risk possible, even if it's at the detriment of the combat readiness of a company or an, or an artillery battery? I am more than happy to talk about it. I'll answer that. Let me, and because you can do some editing, I want to go back to... As soon as I got back to the vehicle, my image of those guys grew 10 feet tall when I had a real appreciation and understanding of what they were doing. They weren't just teaching our Marines and Marine units to do the most dangerous stuff, the most complex stuff. They were taking on that level of responsibility allowing the Marines to train to that standard. And I went back and I said, I'm a, I'm a colonel, right? I'm running the program. I'm the guy. I'm Coyote 6. And he's a captain. There's nothing I could do. I was wholly dependent, Dave, on his alertness, his awareness, mm -hmm. his presence of mind to do what was expected of him to get it done right. And then as I really had an understanding of how we did business and I understood the combined arms training program, we had live fire going on all over the place. I could only be in one spot. I could never be in every spot. Far from it. I had to be in a position where I trusted them. And I mean, the trust I put into those guys, and this is why I was able to write the fitness reports the way I did. The trust I put into them, Dave, was the trust to do the instruction and the training of this very complex, very dangerous, very important stuff that they could get 
the Marines could get nowhere else. And it was delivered to them because of our instructors in the classroom and in the field. And this idea of stewardship of this program tied to the lives of the Marines they were responsible for, it was on them. There wasn't a thing I could do. Had Tommy not paid attention, uh, had he not been able to see the aircraft, and we had that catastrophe, there was, there was nothing I could have done. And that's when I really, I understood a couple things. Again, my job wasn't to look at the exercise force, except to the degree that I could sense how well they were responding to what the coyotes did. I measured the coyote by the effect they were having on the exercise force, how well or poorly they were doing. And, and then this complete and total trust. And you and Matt were talking about and I mentioned earlier the artillery battalion that we had to shut down. What happened, what shut them down was then Major Ted Studdard, retired colonel, who was Coyote 2-2, the artillery rep, the senior infantry rep and OPSO Coyote 3, then Major Kevin Woolley, both of whom I admire greatly. They came into me in the office and said, we do not feel safe going to the field with them. They weren't comfortable. If they weren't in a position where they thought they could exercise sufficient control for their own safety and the safety of the Marines around them, then we had to shut them down. And that's, that's when I called the exercise force commander, the colonel, and said, hey, these guys are done. We're going to have to figure something out. It happened to be we were in the planning stages. You know, we had a couple of days of planning and then doing the combined armed staff trainer rehearsals. So it, it happened at the right point. And that's when all Ben Saylor, uh, who had the regiment, hey Ben, these guys are shut down. We're not going to allow them to shoot until something gets fixed. As you would expect from a commanding officer, Ben said, okay, I got it. They went through some training. They sent all the guys from the artillery school up. I mean, they scrambled like the pros they are. And then Ben came and or communicated to me and said, okay, I, I think they're ready to go. I said, all right, I trust you. I respect you. I happen to know who he was. And your word is good enough for me. And then I went to uh, Kevin and Ted and said, okay, we're, we're going to let them shoot again. And I you know, talked to the exercise force commander at the CO 5th Marines. And, and we all went to the field and everything, everything worked out okay. But this gets into the business of trust. So I think this forms, so how does trust play out? Well, trust is earned. It's earned experientially, right? Because you see it. You watch it take place and it grows on you as you look at how the Marines perform. Do they know what they're doing? Are they proficient? Are they doing it all right? As they do, we trust them more and more. You ask a question about risk mitigation and how some people approach it. And do some people approach it in a way where they don't take risk to minimize the chance of something going bad, thus putting themselves and their career at risk, and who suffers? Well, I, I will tell you, there are some things that are, are just facts. Somebody who does that, and, and we see that, some people will put themselves before the responsibility to their Marines. That is somebody who shouldn't be in charge because ultimately what they're doing is putting their Marines at risk.
if the Marines aren't trained to the highest standards possible, when they go in combat and they have to execute in life and death situations, we run the risk of them not being successful or as successful as they need be. And then we end up grinding through and taking casualties that we shouldn't. A leader who can't take on that kind of responsibility, who refuses to accept that level of risk, has to leave, can't be put in charge, can't be allowed to have that kind of responsibility and authority. Yeah, I agree. I, I wonder how difficult it is to hold people accountable to the standard. Well, this is going to sound strange to say it this way, so give me some artistic license here, but how do we or how does a leader hold a subordinate leader accountable to allowing more risk to be taken? That seems like a very hard thing for a leader to encourage another leader to do when it's so counterintuitive to the progression of a career. I'm going to I'm going to mark you down on your evaluation because you don't take enough risk. I, I'm saying it that way for the sake of brevity, but you understand what I mean. Yeah, I, l let me offer to you, it's the counter. How you should operate with a subordinate is, especially in our maneuver warfare doctrine, trust tactics, implicit communications, this sense of high expectation, even in the absence of communication, you should be operating at the highest end. It's not a question of me giving it to you. It ought to be assumed that you have it. If you don't exercise it, we have a problem. Or if in my role and responsibility as a supervisor, I see that you're shaky with it, then, you know, I pull the reins in. But that's how we should be operating. Senior leaders in their in their duties and responsibilities of being mentors. No, not being mentors. Their duty and obligation of developing their subordinates, it becomes part and parcel. That's how the leader sees and understands. If the people who progress and are risk averse, are afraid of risk, and deliberately so, you can see it in how they behave and how they run the unit, then their leaders failed them mm -hmm. because that should have been identified and corrected or then moved off to a place where they don't have to worry about the risk because they're never given the authority and responsibility to be at risk. I want to tie that thought into my next question. I'm coming back to that maverick in the military, and I'm going to, I think that term has a lot of different definitions, so let me hone in on them with a little bit of a preamble here. We celebrate these maverick characters in military movies like Gunny Highway or The Great Santini, or I think my favorite one is actually from Top Gun Maverick because his liter literally his call sign is Maverick. We love these characters in the movies. I'll actually continue to use Maverick, the pilot character, Tom Cruise, because I think it's so informative to look at risk this way. But the very beginning of the movie, and everybody knows the scene where he says, I'm going to slam on the brakes and he'll fly right by. Well, clearly, I'm not a pilot, but clearly that is not some sort of maneuver that is taught in basic flight school. And he took some risks to figure out because Goose screams back from the back seat, you're going to do what? And he does this risky maneuver, which creates a scenario where he has reversed the roles and now he is in a position to shoot down the MiG. And then he does it again in, in Top Gun school where I, he almost gets to kill one of the Top Gun instructors, notionally kill a Top Gun instructor. And so we, we love this character who takes this risk and does something that's really out of the ordinary and creative and thoughtful. 
and we love these characters. But then I think I think about my time back on active duty, and I don't know what leaders are doing to actually encourage that sort, not the behavior, but that sort of way of thinking, creative thinking about problems and taking some risks. How can I creatively take some risks so that I actually learn something and the Marines actually learn something that is applicable to combat? And I'm I'm currently rereading, and I'm sure you've read it, that book Matterhorn. And I'm at the point now, I'm almost to the end, where they're assaulting Matterhorn and one of one of the infantry platoons is given the mission of sitting up on top of Helicopter Hill and firing over the heads of the platoon that is assaulting Matterhorn as they come up the hill to fight the NVA, entrenched NVA soldiers, and I think myself. Where did they ever practice setting up a base of fire and firing, literally firing over a platoon's head as they were assaulting up an objective in combat? The answer is they probably didn't. They just figured it out and did it. And then you think to yourself, how often is something like that happening in training these days? Actually, at 29 Palms, we permit that and we train to it. And that's one of the key elements of Range 400 in, in our experience. And again, some people offer complaints about it because there's a perception that it's somewhat static. Again, live fire, you don't get a lot of volunteers being targets. Uh, who, who are living people. So the target tree is inevitably static. And, and yeah, we run sort of a bit of a canned scenario. So in this canned scenario on, on a mission and a task that every company ought to be proficient at, you know, why do, I don't know, 75, 80% of them do very, very poorly? Because we're not good at the basics of blocking and tackling. Overhead fire is permitted. One of the things that in training one of the things that you have to do is you have to do the actual planning that requires you to make sure that at the point where the machine guns are flying over the heads of the Marines, you have the right measurable distance with, you know, the safety buffer in. So make sure that nothing will happen. And, you know, we do other things, right, mm -hmm. on the elevation Nod, you know, we, we, we put bars so the machine guns can't go any lower. So so we can't train to that. The the safety restrictions that we impose in most of those cases are actually not unreasonable because we're teaching the discipline to do it right. And if you do it right, you're permitted to do it in training. But these are the same things you would do in combat. Wouldn't you want to make sure that if you're doing overhead fire like in the case of Matterhorn, that you're not going to shoot your own Marines? Absolutely. Yeah, of course. So let me offer some thoughts about what Mavericks are. You know, this is, this is a tough one. So is it the guy who flaunts basic discipline and standards? I mean, what are we gaining in a, in, by being a Maverick? And, and, and what does that mean? Is this really an excuse for somebody who... You know, maybe lacks discipline that then shows up in combat that, that becomes reflective in the unit. That the unit now, because they're led by a, a maverick, becomes undisciplined. And then as things play out in combat, I'm going to do it my own way just because. Now, so here's the expectation, Dave. You're company commander. You need to take objective alpha, you know, whatever that is. It's the hilltop that overlooks you know, the road intersection, because that's going to be critical. We're going to be passing under it in three hours. 
And if you don't have that, then our convoy runs the risk of being, you know, shot at and, and wiped out. So I'll give you that task. You have to be there in an hour and a half and be successful at it because it, an hour and a half after that, we're going to be driving through. And, and I just have to know that you're there providing that security. Otherwise, we could be in trouble. And then you're going along and you say, you know, I don't, I don't think I like that hill. I'm going to do a different hill. And what happens in the breakdown? Uh, what happens if the different hill doesn't allow you to accomplish the real mission? And the mission is ensuring that road intersection is not going to be interfered with by bad guys. What, what if that taking of the new hill happens to put you in somebody else's zone and then they think you're bad guys and they start shooting at you because you violated the boundary? I, I do think it's important. I'm not sure I would say that somebody who is bold and creative is necessarily a maverick. Uh, although if that person stands out, maybe that ought to tell us something, right? We, we are in an environment where we, you ought to be bold. You ought to be able to take prudent, sound risks that you can measure and you can assure yourself that you're not reckless. There's, I think, a difference between boldness and recklessness. I agree. There, and it's a, it can be perceived as a fine line, but I don't think it should be a fine line. No, it should be an easily definable line because if people who are bold are perceived to be reckless, then, then you're going to crush the idea of boldness in a unit and, and you could end up creating a very timid unit. Right. We're coming up on the end of our hour here. And so I, I wanted to give you an opportunity as, as general spees and assume that there's a, a lieutenant colonel, an infantry battalion commander or an infantry company commander listening right now who's challenged with a maverick in his unit and isn't really sure if he's been able to assess whether that Marine has the ability to understand that there's a difference between boldness and recklessness. He displays these moments of genius where he, he like Maverick, where he jams on the brakes and he'll fly right by, only to be quickly followed up with a, a reckless maneuver like buzzing the tower. As you look back as a general and you look down the chain of command and you're talking to that Italian commander or the company commander, do you have a piece of advice for that Marine or leader on how to assess and either mentor that Maverick to become bold yet not reckless or how to identify it, or how to handle it if they figure out that they are indeed reckless. I think that maybe you could give some insight. You know, Dave, that's a very, very good example. And, and, and it's a good analogy. kind of went through this when I was in Marine Aircraft Group 12. There was an officer who, who worked in the three shop, was flying with one of the squadrons. He, he was an augment to us, you know, but he you know, still had to keep his flight calls. And he was on a deployment south of, of Japan, and he buzzed the officer's club. Uh, yet he was a great pilot. You know, sometimes it's good to start at the back end and work forward. I will be bold and say, do you remember the EA-6B that uh, cut the wires of the tram? Of course. Okay, I never read the investigation. I only saw the open source reports. I would offer to you that I could come close to describing everything. So I've been in the A6B with guys, actually. I, I, I know that. I've experienced it. So I wake up in the morning and, and, you know, we're going to push the envelope. You, you work your way there, right? The drill instructor who ends up assaulting a recruit at Bukit. Wake up. It's not the first time, right? You get there softly. 
you know, one step at a time. You, you, you stand in front of a recruit and, and use profanity. You know, you kind of spit on them. Then you bang, you know, the DI cover, you know, the rim of the cover into the recruit's forehead. And then when you're correcting them on how, the, you know, holding the rifle position, you know, you're a little bit more aggressive. I think you had mentioned it earlier, you know, when, when it happens, everybody sits around and says, oh, man, we saw that coming. Of course, I think you see that in the personality long before the tower gets buzzed. You've got to be knowing. You've got to be, and you have to identify those people, right? That's one of our responsibilities as a leader. Know your people and look out for their welfare. And part of looking out for their welfare is slapping them upside the head when they're getting close to buzzing the tower at the same time, when you see this novel new tactic displayed, you endorse it. You validate it. You take it back and say, hmm, maybe we all ought to be doing this. This is something that's good. It's useful. It works out. You know, that same person, you know, maybe has a personality that says, well, if I can, if everybody thinks I'm great for this, I'll just buzz the tower. And, and that's the guy you take off on the sideline. And you say, that's not acceptable. You can't do it. And it's not a one strike, you're out. But but there is a three strikes and you're out kind of thing because, again, you don't get to the tower the first time. You know, there's something else. You you know, you, you, you violate the ceiling, you know, whether it's 500 feet. Okay, well, I was 500 feet above something. Yuck, yuck, yuck. No, you have to be 500 feet above the ground. Yep, I like the maneuver, but... We can't put it at risk because if you're below 500 feet and something bad happens, you don't have enough airspace, you know, altitude and time to correct it. That's why we have this 500-foot floor, you know, in a situation like that. And, and that's explained. Now, at the same time, you know, one of the reasons why we established Marine Air Weapons Training Squadron 1, MOTS, we, we established the MOTS business is because we were crashing airplanes. We're crashing airplanes because pilots were doing things that they thought they could do and they really couldn't. And as General Amos, a former, you know, a former commandant, explains it, we, we started the school that taught them what they could do. And we took them to the limits, but only to the limit because we also taught them that beyond the limit, you die. And teaching them that and them getting there and seeing it but knowing that across the threshold, you depart, you know, you depart controlled flight, and the only thing that ends up after that is a smoking hole in the ground, then they know. If you don't know what happens, well, you're going to edge up to it. When you do know, and you understand it to be physics, this isn't, you know, the safety parameter. This is physics. Beyond this, Newton says you're crashing. Then, then you know. So... I do think in those environments, you, you make sure that you teach the energetic officer what that limit is and why the limit is there and what the consequences are. And then it has to be respected. And when the right one, the valid one, is not respected, that's when you start having the hard conversations. And then the question becomes, are you, in fact, a greater risk than you are a value? And it ends up if you if you create a mishap, then and and it's a big mishap, right? Planes crashing, people dying, people getting shot because you were lazy and sloppy in the training, 
and you didn't do the right procedures, then, then, then the conclusion is significant and big time that it wasn't worth it. Right. It's like that saying, flying in an airplane is one of the safest modes of transportation. You have a much lower risk of dying in an airplane than you do driving in your car on a commute to work. And I say, yeah, I get it. It's a low risk way to travel until you're in a plane going down. And then your chance, then, then it's 100%. That's right. It's not risky until it is risky. And then when it is risky, it's catastrophic. I think that that's really what, that's another way of saying what you're saying. It's the assessment of risk. And if that person is taking one risk out of a, a hundred decisions, one is really risky. But if that risk went the wrong way, it would be catastrophic, like a plane going into the ground or something. That's, that's a serious lapse in judgment relative to somebody who makes 100 decisions and 50 of them are, well, if that had gone wrong, maybe you know there would have been a flat tire on the Humvee or maybe a dented taillight or something like that. Different, different risks. Yes. And, and again, I think, Dave, as, as you're in that, what, again, going back to Skinny Harrington, one of the things is you know when you start a Humvee in the morning, when you fire up a light armored vehicle, an amphibian tractor, an aircraft, you're accepting risk all the time. But if you're doing the procedures right, it ought to be okay. When you come back in the aftermath and you find out that the tragedy is something simple was deliberately ignored or overlooked, a reasonable expectation was violated. You know, so that's why we, we teach people to work within these. And again, that, that's why the tactical maneuver is great. Buzzing the tower is unacceptable. They are arguably mutually exclusive. One is creative. One is dynamic. One is innovative. The other one is, I don't know, a simple arrogant violation of simple discipline. And when you permit discipline to break down, Right? That's one of the things. What rules do you allow to be broken? And then who gets to make them up? Once you start breaking rules, then all rules get to be broken. So that's why there's a difference, I think, between a breakdown of discipline and creativity. We are going to train to overhead fire, and we're going to do it to the tactical standards we do and we're not going to not do it. The easy thing is to say, no, I'm not going to do the high-risk training. No, you do the high-risk training, you do it right. You go through the procedures. The Marine who got shot at night in Udari, the unit failed in the basic procedures that we teach. And then it becomes a tragedy. Dave, in my experience in my career, I was seen as creative and innovative. I, 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 I'm a change agent. Uh, and I always have been part of the task when I went to force reconnaissance. That was an expectation make make changes. I think what you end up doing is you build a cachet over time, and you build that cachet because of a number of things. One is obviously, does it work out well? How well does it work? Are the no kidding, improvements there. Can you measurably see, yes, this is good, this is better, you know, the job's getting done. I think the other aspect is motivation. What drives you to 
I think then people observing get a sense of, of who you are. It was interesting. The number of assignments I had gave me a lot of visibility. Second Force Reconnaissance was an assignment where I had a lot of visibility for all kinds of different reasons. And people gained confidence in me, not just because I think we got things right, but I did things that were even a step beyond that. Right? I, I saw opportunities. I was able to look inside and, and, and get more. So I think what ends up happening is people see that. I've made a few mistakes along the way, done a couple of stupid things. Some that, boy, talking about, you know, risk takers, had I, you know, as a young lieutenant, and I'd done a couple of dumb things at times, and uh, Captain Bucky Peterson, retired Colonel Bucky Peterson, and less of an officer, had he been a coward in that regard? Same thing with Colonel Diffie, Jerry Diffie. Had they not been willing to, had I not earned their trust and confidence, by the display of performance, then when the dumb thing came up, they couldn't have been in a position to stick their neck out. I would not have given them a reason to do so because I would not have been of value worth that cost. Evidently, I did. They went to bat for me. They, in fact, were adamant and moved quickly on my behalf. I know if we had another hour, I could hear many, many more, and maybe we'll have you back on again another time for another hour. But I just want to tell you how much I appreciate your generosity with your time and your willingness to endure my questions and help educate younger leaders, whether they're in civilian world or young NCOs or young officers. I just firmly believe that the best leadership lessons are taught around a couple beers or a fire pit and told through stories and you have not disappointed us with any of your stories or your observations and I'm grateful for your time. Well, thanks, Dave. It's a privilege to talk to you. Leaders can be made. The Marine Corps it and does it well. So I hope that what you're doing gives people the opportunity as they listen to say, yeah, I can be and I ought to be. Chris Lowney, the author who wrote the book, uh, heroic leadership. You are always leading, either good or bad, but you are always leading, even if it's only leading yourself. So that allows you to look differently at this business leadership, and it becomes real personal. It becomes introspective. So yes, you're always leading, either poorly or leading well, and even if it's only you, you're leading. So I'll I'll leave with that. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. As a matter of fact, hopefully a future guest on the podcast uh, said that very thing to me last night. I've been hearing about your podcast, and I'm not sure I'd be a great guest because I only have a lot of stories about bad leadership, and I said those are generally the best ones. <laughs> Major General Mel Spies, again, thank you very much for your insight and your wisdom. You had a fantastic career. You are revered. By many of my friends that I revere, you should know how popular you are as a leader and as a man. And I know that the word popularity isn't something that we embrace in the Marine Corps as being very important, but 
I think when you look back on your career and look at that word popular, it wasn't popular because you were the popular person in high school. It was popular because everybody looked up to you as a leader and appreciated everything you taught them and the mentorship that you provided them. So again, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to staying in touch with you, sir. Great, Dave. It was a privilege to do this with you and uh, good luck with this. And I look forward to seeing how this all plays out. Thank you so much.